Ten bears? I am ten bears. We could get Saboget Jesus, apaget yejov man etokolget apeye pogothis. Hische estongo tlakumahi legabashi. Welcome to the very first Hall of Fame spotlight episode featuring one of my favorite Native American actors of all time. He's not only uh, born and raised in Altmulgee County, Oklahoma, he was also a full-blood Muscogee Estijati. We are talking about the one and the only William Sampson Jr., uh, known to family and friends, though, as Sonny. I first became aware of him, you know, sadly, in one of his final movie roles, Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. See, growing up, we didn't have cable. We were just sort of relegated to the basic 11 channels or so. And when we finally did get cable, HBO was part of the package. And that was definitely a privilege in our house, and our dad never let us forget it. There seemed to be an, an endless stream of movies they'd run on a loop. Um, and in fact, at one point, I thought HBO actually stood for, hey, Beastmasters on. But one of the films they used to show was a film called Poltergeist 2. 
And I think the reason why Poltergeist 2 had such an effect on me was that this is one of the most haunting movies I have ever seen. I mean, uh, you have Julian Beck, and he plays probably the scariest character in any motion picture to date. And even to this day, I'm still spooked by the sounds and just the looks of uh, Reverend Kane. But for me, it was really about seeing Will Sampson as Taylor, uh, the Indian medicine man portrayed by Will Sampson. And this was in a time before the internet, and my tiny mind was melted even further when my dad casually threw out the fact that, uh, oh yeah, he's, he's from Oklahoma, that's Will Sampson, and he's Creek, he's, he's just like us. I mean, just like us, that guy on TV is like us. Man, that is all I needed to hear. Uh, not knowing he had passed, uh, I, I can remember going to powwows or church or just even out and about. I was constantly looking for him. I mean, I seriously expected him just to come walking up to the meat pie cooler or just casually, you know, walking through the mall or maybe coming through the back doors of the Indian church and, you know, sitting in the back row. What can you say about this man? Uh, I remember fake being sick to stay home from school when I was probably about 13 and I'd ride my bike to super video and I would check out a handful of videos that there was no way my parents would let me check out if I was with them. Of course I would choose these videos based solely on the box art Uh, and back in those days I would do kind of like theme days I swear I would. I still do it to this day. And I think I was going to have like an when animals attack kind of day. And I picked three movies, uh, Jaws 3, I picked Grizzly, and a little film called Orca. And I can remember flipping that clamshell case over and seeing Will Sampson on the back. And that just lit my totka. Uh, I just couldn't wait to get home and throw that into the top loader. In high school, uh, as your, your tastes kind of mature a little bit, uh, I would wait to see him appear as Ten Bears in Outlaw Josie Wells, and it's the best two minutes of that movie. Or I would marvel at him and his uh, stoicism in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, here's a guy from Oklahoma who was Creek, who's in the movies, and he's just like me. Just like me. I don't know. I mean, I've always felt this connection to the man's spirit that I've never been able to fully explain or even explore. And as I grew older, of course, my taste would change and it would move away from guys like Will Sampson and kind of float towards guys like Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sly and Van Damme and, of course, my beloved Steven Seagal. No chuckles out there. I love Steven Seagal. But it was Will Sampson that I remember the most. This guy is a legend. He's from Oklahoma. Everybody seems to know him, but nobody really does know who he is. They have stories. They've had things that have been passed down. There's pictures. There's paintings. There's sketches. But none of it really added up to who he really was. So in this episode, I'm going to explore the life of Will Sampson Jr., You fool them, you fool them all. 
When Randall McMurphy, the character portrayed by Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, prods the mute Indian Chief Bromden into taking a stick of juicy fruit, what the audience saw and heard for the first time was so far removed from the stereotypical uggs, howls, and kemasabis of normal Hollywood drivel. And it was done with just two simple words, juicy fruit. In that one simple, quick, fleeting scene, a new generation of hope and anticipation was heralded among Native American moviegoers, long downtrodden playing the victims or savages of shoot 'em up westerns. Native Americans were ready for a new cinematic treatment, one that was real, honest, and most importantly, contemporary. But what audiences really clamored for was for indigenous people to finally be portrayed as humans. Will Sampson's film debut as the silent, sharp, supposedly canatonic mental patient Chief Bromden is credited with changing the prevailing Hollywood images of Indians. You see, up until then, Native Americans were portrayed as, you know, illiterate sidekicks or unassuming layabouts and otherwise cast in submissive or savage, unsavory roles. And more often than not, despite how awful they were, it was Italians or Mexicans that normally got those parts. This character, however, became a metaphor for hope in an otherwise impractical environment. The movie takes place in a mental asylum, for God's sakes. But this depiction broke the Indian stereotype of Tinseltown forever. But there was much more to Will Sonny Sampson Jr. than just the 22 films that he made between the years of 1975 and 1986. When I set out to do this, I honestly thought it'd be a pretty easy task. I mean, you know, surely in this digital age there would be this plethora of information on the man and his career. So I hit the internet with a fever of excitement and determination, bound to tell this story. And when I entered in Will Sampson in the search engine, the first stop is always Wikipedia. It's always Wikipedia. But I was really surprised to find that this was all there was. William Sampson Jr., September 27, 1933 to June 3, 1987, was a Native American painter, actor, and rodeo performer. He is best known for his performance as the apparent deaf and mute Chief Bromden in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and as Crazy Horse in the 1977 Western The White Buffalo, as well as his role as Taylor in Poltergeist 2, The Other Side, and Ten Bears in 1976, The Outlaw Josie Wales. He was also known by his childhood nickname, Sonny. He was a Muscogee Creek man born in Altmulgee County, Oklahoma, to William Wiley Sampson and Mabel Sampson Lewis. Sampson Jr. had at least five children, Samsagee, Sam, and Lumhe Miko Sampson of the Sampson Brothers duo, actor Timothy Tim James Sampson, Robert Benjamin Sampson, and Destiny Sampson. The Sampson's Brothers duo are known for their traditional fancy and grass dances and often perform with Frank Wallen, a notable Lakota hip-hop artist. His son Robert was murdered in Tulsa in 2013. Timothy Tim Sampson died in 2019. Sampson competed in the rodeo circuit when producers Saul Zantz and Michael Douglas of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest were looking for a large Native American to play the role of Chief Bromden. Samson stood an imposing 6-7. Rodeo announcer Mel Lambert mentioned Samson to them, and after lengthy efforts to find him, they hired him on the strength of an interview. He had never acted before. As an actor, Samson's most notable roles were as Chief Bromden in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, as Taylor the Medicine Man in the horror film Poltergeist 2. 
He had a recurring role on the TV series Vegas as Harlan Tuleaf and starred in the movies Fishhawk, The Outlaw Josie Wales, and Orca. Sampson appeared in the production of Black Elk Speaks with uh, the Native American Theater Company in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where David Carradine and other Native American actors such as Wes Studi and Randolph Mantooth have appeared in stage productions. He also played Crazy Horse in The White Buffalo with Charles Bronson. Sampson was an artist. His large painting depicting the ribbon dance of the Muscogee Creek is in the collection of the Creek Council House Museum in Mulgee, Oklahoma. His artwork has been shown at the Gilcrease Museum and the Philbrook Museum of Art. Sampson suffered from scleroderma, a chronic degenerative condition that affected his heart, lungs, and skin. During his lengthy illness, his weight fell from 260 to 140 pounds, causing complications related to malnutrition. After undergoing a heart and lung transplant at Houston Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas, he died on June 3, 1987, of post-operative kidney failure. Samson was just 53 years old. Samson was interred at the Graves Creek Cemetery in Hitchita, Oklahoma. So I thought to myself, well, that's a pretty good start, but there's got to be more than this. But the next Google link is just his Internet Movie Database page. And then the next link is from the Oklahoma Historical Society. And then Find a Grave. And then Pinterest. Pinterest? I mean, once you've hit Pinterest in the search engine, relatives, you are scraping the boot hills of the Internet. But each one sort of gave me the same generic overview of his life with maybe a few more embellishments here or a few details there. And I was stunned that there's no more information out there. But I was reminded of what Grandma used to say to me. If you ever want to know something about something, you need to ask your elders. So I went to a couple of Muskogee Facebook groups that I belong to, and I just typed in a simple question. Does anybody have any good stories about Will Sampson, the actor? And for the next two weeks, my inbox was full. And I began compiling together stories to bring to you the first ever biography of the man himself. But it's not going to be a complete biography, mind you, because truth be told, there are several years where nobody but Samson himself knows where he was at or what he was doing. There's like these time holes, so to speak. And there's honestly way too many people to try to give credit to or give thanks to because I got a lot of similar stories told with different details during different timelines with different people who were there and witnesses that were there. And I kind of started to lose track of who sent me what story or who I talked to in person or who I spoke with on the phone. So if I get a little of this out of order or just flat out wrong, I apologize ahead of time. And I'm not going to sit here and try to tell you what I think is true or what's not true. But what I've done is combine a few different or similar stories together and try to bring you the most comprehensive program that I can. And because of that, I'm just going to say cousin when I'm referring to people in these stories because you all know about them native cousins. Most likely or not, it was probably a cousin anyway. So I started out calling him Will or Samson or Will Samson, but he was known by family and friends as Sonny. And the more I began to type, the more I began to read, the more I began to research, the more I began to uncover, I started to feel this strange spiritual connection to the man. And I began typing and writing about him as almost if I knew him. Like I knew who he was, and I can't explain it to you. So because of that, when I'm talking about him, I'm going to refer to him as Sonny, and I hope that's okay with the family. The Sampsons all lived together with their grandmother, Cinda Hill, in a little yellow frame house nestled deep in the woods just east of Morris, Oklahoma. Whenever anybody asked where they lived, the answer was always down bottom, 
even though the house actually sat on top of a hill. His mother, father, and older sisters, Vina May and Norma Jean, all lived with Grandma, who had several children of her own, just barely older than Sonny himself. His father was a farmer of sorts who kept a small field of crops on the property. They had a few cows, chickens, pigs, a couple of horses, and a small garden. His mother earned money through inheritances that she got when both her parents tragically died when she was only two. She was sent to live with her aunt and uncle and appointed a guardian through the Indian agency. These so-called guardians were supposed to look after the child's welfare by telling them what they could and couldn't buy with a monthly allowance. Of course, several of these guardians were dishonest and just flat-out crooked. They took full advantage of the situation, but it's a whole other podcast. Growing up surrounded by numerous sisters and cousins, there was always someone to play with or work with, and their days were spent riding wagons, plowing the soft, cool Oklahoma dirt, cutting and chopping wood for heating in the cook stove, and hauling cold spring water from the well down below from where the house was situated. Each kid learned to carry a bucket of water and took turns doing so until the task was complete. Grandma Hill kept her own garden, and the kids, the kids busied themselves playing in the dirt and digging up potatoes. Indian summers in Oklahoma are one of my favorite times of year. I mean, the weather is just near perfect. It's not too hot and humid like it is in the summer, and it's not too cold and frigid like it gets in the wintertime. The leaves on the trees begin turning this golden color just to match the coming season. It's just beautiful. And on September 27, 1931, Grandma was bustling around the house, shooing all of the kids into the front room by the wood stove, telling them all, Jayayagas, Jayayagas. Grandma Hill knew very little English and always spoke in Creek. His sister Norma Jean remembered, wondering just what is going on. It was this gorgeous Indian summer day when suddenly the house was filled with the soft cries of a newborn baby. William Sampson Jr. made his first appearance. Norma Jean remembers looking at all the kids gathered in the front room with surprise. They had no idea that there was a new baby on the way. His mother took him and weighed him on a meat scale that Grandma had in the kitchen. Eleven pounds, it read. And right away they started calling him Sonny Boy. His parents had prayed to Creator that they would be blessed with a little boy, and there he was. Norma remembers him as being a good baby, always good-natured and quick to smile and laugh, and rarely was he ever whiny or cranky. In 1936, the family relocated to a home northeast of Ultmogee, Oklahoma. It sat on a plot of land that had a big yard, was dotted with numerous shade trees, a pasture, and a big red barn. Sonny grew into a happy, creative little boy. The kids made their own things to play with and invented their own games. He was about three years old, and his favorite game was called Horse. In this game, it sounds exactly like what you'd think a three-year-old would come up with. It involved his older sisters setting a pan of water under a shade tree and fixing up a little pile of grass. Sonny would take the empty condensed milk cans and somehow get them to fit on his hands and feet as if they were hooves. He'd run and gallop and buck on those tin cans until his little hands were bruised and his feet swollen. Then he'd come back around to his sisters who were always there under a big shade tree with some water to lap up and some grass to nibble on. And when they'd tire of that, there was always the woods where they could go explore. They loved walking deer trails, picking up odd-shaped rocks, catching insects and butterflies along the way. Sonny would always get excited over seeing every little animal he saw, no matter how large or small. His sister remembers him getting down on his hands and knees and patiently watching the ants and worms wiggling about in the dirt. He'd take a twig and he'd sweep them all back close to him and watch them crawl away, 
only to repeat the action again and again. He loved animals, all animals, especially horses. Horses would play a much bigger role in his life when he got older, and he would develop a passion for Western art. The family kept the usual farm animals around the property, and he'd give them all names. There was a pig named Charlie, two mules named Jack and Bell, and two buckskin horses named Prince and Ribbon. But perhaps his pride and joy was a goat named Susie, and he got that goat by trading all of his marbles one day. The nanny goat loved him too and would constantly follow him around both inside and outside the house. His mother Mabel was raised up going to stomp dances. She went along with her aunt and uncle who were both shakers and stomp dancers, traditional people. There has always been this division between traditional people and church people, which to anyone is completely understandable. There's a similarity between the two also, however, and each has its own set of beliefs and guidelines. The tribal grounds have very strict procedures about how things are done. It's maybe a little lenient nowadays, but not back then. It's very common also that if a person is raised up either knowing traditional ways or church ways, that when they become an adult, they'll just stick to one. For Mabel, she married, had children, and just kind of stopped going to the dances. Sonny was raised up in the Baptist faith at the Grave Creek Indian Church in Hitchita, Oklahoma. The building, which used to be a mission school for Creek children, is at least 125 years old, and it still stands and operates today. Going to church in Indian communities has always meant singing traditional hymns, eating, worshiping, seeing and visiting family and friends. But for Sonny and the rest of the kids, it just meant playing, exploring, and getting into trouble usually. The family would hitch up the wagon with supplies and head out for the 25-mile trek by mule. Sonny rarely rode in the wagon. He was busying himself playing with the dogs or chasing after any animal he saw. His sister recalls him constantly peeping into snake holes, hoping to see or catch one. As soon as the congregation would arrive, they'd immediately begin unloading the wagons and hauling water. The men would set up a brush arbor while the women would begin setting up the camp houses. Church meetings were a happy time, getting clothes together, setting up bedding, pots and pans, stopping in the little town of Morris for groceries. It was almost kind of like going on a mini vacation every weekend. The first time he was introduced to the movies was at Grave Creek Church. There was a man who lived in Hitchita Town, and occasionally on Saturday nights he would set up his projector in his garage or shed. The films were obviously in black and white and usually contained no sound. He'd charge a nickel, and all the kids could walk down from the church and watch the movies. The movies they saw were mostly westerns featuring cowboy stars of the day, and little Sonny was engrossed watching them. On the walk back to church one night, his cousin one time asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, and Sonny quickly answered a hillbilly. He probably meant a cowboy and got the two mixed up, but needless to say, it was a funny moment. In 1939, Sonny's just six years old. He started attending first grade at Preston, which is still there today. Back then there was no kindergarten, no preschool, no Head Start programs, just straight school. And the family lived about a quarter mile off the road and he had to walk that every day in order to catch the bus. School was hard for him, but there was one subject that he excelled at. It was around this time that the family began to notice how well he could draw. As soon as he could hold a pencil, he was drawing and he drew on any scrap piece of paper he could find. And if paper wasn't available, he would draw on the ground using a stick. His favorite subject to draw, of course, was animals. It's always animals. And Sonny drew whenever he got the chance. And when the teachers became aware of his talent, 
They had him drawing all the murals on the chalkboard for Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter, Valentine's Day. He was in the first grade when he got the opportunity to act for the first time, too. Each grade was required to put on a play or a skit in a school-wide musical. The first grade skit was based on the old nursery rhyme, Sing a Song of Sixpence, Pocket Full of Rye. Sonny played the part of a blackbird. He was required to jump up at the proper time and yell out, Your Majesty, Your Majesty! But because he couldn't pronounce majesty correctly, he just ended up shouting, Your Master, Your Master! instead. About this time, his parents began having marital problems. All three kids were close to their father, even though he was in and out most of the time. He soon moved back home with his mother and continued to have a relationship with the family. But Sonny wouldn't be lonely for long. His cousins Curtis and Esther Simmons moved in just across the pasture from them. The three cousins, along with their sister Norma and Vina, all played outside until it got dark. It is said that Kurt was the brother Sonny never had, and if he ever had a closer friend in life, they wouldn't know who it would be. They grew up together, they went to school together, they drank together, and found mischief of all kinds throughout their lives. Cowboys, rodeos, and horses were always interesting to him. He would sometimes take a small cotton rope and chase the barn cats all over the property until he'd finally rope it. Then he'd tie it up by its hind legs and throw his hands up in the air like a team roper would. He'd always get fussed out if his mother ever caught him doing that. Regardless, he was always roping anything he could find. Goats, dogs, and even his cousins and sisters were common targets. He had long outgrown his horse playing days, although he continued to draw them constantly. He would watch the horses ride along the dusty prairie in the movies, or sometimes just out the front door, and he'd go back inside and draw them exactly the way he remembered. One morning, his mother woke him up to tell him that his horse Ribbon had had a colt. Sonny immediately took to the horse, naming her Gale. It is believed that he prized this horse over everything else, going so far as to occasionally sleep in the barn beside her. She never had to be broke to ride. Sonny just jumped on her bareback one day and off they went as if they had done it a thousand times. It was the same horse he had saved one day. When he was about eight or nine years old, there was a big grass fire at the house. They were burning trash in the burn pit one windy day when an errant ember ignited the blaze. And once the community saw the big plume of black smoke, they all came running with buckets of water trying to put out the flames. Gail was trapped inside the pasture. She was running wildly back and forth, her heart racing. The family tried to hold Sonny back to no avail. He slipped out of their grasp and he took, took off running straight into the heat. And when that filly saw him coming, she made a beeline towards him too. He jumped on her back, bareback, and they galloped over the fire and flamed to safety. It was like a scene out of a movie. At this time, he was growing and growing into a young man. And they say by the time he was in his teens, he was all arms and legs. He was still running around with his cousin Kurt and he'd learned about stomp dances and they started to attend them frequently. In the summertime, dances were held almost every weekend and they were constantly catching rides to Okima or Henrietta. His mother had remarried and Sonny seemed to be away from the home more and more. You might call it teenage rebellion. His older sister had left school in Preston and began attending Haskell Indian Institute in Lawrence, Kansas. It was an all Indian government boarding school. In 1947, Sonny and Curtis joined her there. At the time, Haskell was a four-year program with a postgraduate or commercial program. But of all the things he learned in junior high, perhaps the most surprising was finding out that the Creeks weren't the only tribe in Oklahoma. He learned, among other things, that there were many different tribes and traditions, 
language, customs, and culture, Sonny quickly made friends and seemed to adjust to life away from home. Perhaps the most important friend he'd make while there was a man named Joe Hill from Wetumpka. He, Sonny, and Curtis became the three stooges of the Creek Nation, pulling multiple stunts and pranks during their tenure at H.I., from sneaking back into the dorms drunk by climbing through the fire escapes to catching rabbits hanging off the hoods of their beat-up cars to putting brown or black shoe polish on their ankles to make people think they had socks on. Sonny loved to joke, I gotta be careful out here when it rains or my socks will disappear. These three men would go on to become lifelong friends. By 1948, he's a tall 15-year-old kid and still growing. During Christmas break of that year, he returned briefly to Haskell, only to come back just a couple of days later in someone's car. Curtis and Sonny told the family they had left the school, when in all actuality, they dropped out. Ninth grade, that would be the end of his formal education. During this time, the two cousins were constantly together, raising all kinds of hell and drinking beer. They got involved in the local rodeo circuit. Sonny was always enchanted by that rodeo world, and he entered the first chance he got. Instead of busting out school books, he started busting out Bronx. That appealed more to him. Rodeo was something he did off and on for nearly 20 years. He once said in a New York Times interview, when you're an Indian and you're 14 and you have a lot of anger inside you, rodeo is a good way to dispel a lot of it. Throughout it all, Samson continued to draw, along with all the other extracurricular activities he, Kurt, and Joe Hill found to do. He was beginning to experiment with different media. And when he was 18 years old, he entered an art competition at the Philbrook Art Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He worked on this painting day and night in a little rock house he was living in at the time. It was also during this time that he began signing his paintings with the Creek word Guskana, which means left-handed. The end result was that he won the grand award for his work in 1951. With that win, he began getting recognition for his artwork. He would go on to be commissioned to paint a mural for the International Petroleum Expo, the Quarter Horse Journal, and the Arizona Highways. He was recognized for these paintings and drawings long before he achieved any notoriety as the first Native American to break the mold of demeaning film actor stereotypes. He is quoted as saying, painting is my life. Before anything else, first, last, and always, I am a painter. Along with painting and rodeoing, Samson began to work at odd jobs around town, realizing a little money comes in handy every once in a while. He was hauling hay, working in the oil fields, did some construction work, and climbed power poles as a lineman. And it was also during this time that he began to drink on a regular basis, causing him to occasionally run into trouble with the local law. And if anybody's ever lived in Altmulgee, Oklahoma, you know it's a pretty easy thing to do. One particular evening, he was pretty buzzed up and shooting some pool at the 21 Club. And a scuffle broke out, and of course the police were called. And as they were trying to put him into the back of the squad car, all Sonny could say was, Don't lose my hat, and you better not lose my hat. It would be an experience that he would call on later for a scene in the Season 2, Episode 1 television series, Vegas, in 1979. In the episode, his character, named Harlan Tuleaf, is framed for the murder of a friend. As they're putting him into the back of the police car, Tuleaf says, Whatever you do, don't lose my hat. It was around this time that he and Joe Hill started leaving Oklahoma frequently in what they referred to as road runs. These road runs became an excuse just to kind of get out of town for a while and look for some work. They'd load up the beat-up old Packard and head west. 
One story goes that they were tired and hungry and about out of gas one night, and they pulled up to a random Hogan outside of Arizona. The Navajo people who lived there fed them and put them up for the night. But along midnight, Curtis started hearing them drumming and singing. And having never heard those songs or that singing style before, both men got really spooked. They quickly gathered their things and slipped out the back, fearing for their lives. In 1952, Sonny got married to a woman named Yana. She was 21 and he was just 19. The two had met at the Haskell Indian Institute and got reacquainted when she moved back home. After graduation, Yana joined the Air Force and was stationed in San Antonio, Texas. Marriage didn't cramp his style at all, however. He stayed behind in Altmulgee, making the occasional trip down to visit her. When she got out of the service, the family relocated to California, looking for a better opportunity. Yana soon found a job as a PBX operator, and Sonny just kind of bounced around from bar to bar, making friends along the way. There'd be times that he'd be gone all day from that little basement apartment that they rented on Sunset Boulevard, and he'd come home at night with stories of his adventures. One night, he didn't come home at all. It seems he stumbled into a bar in downtown Los Angeles where a lot of Indians hung out. He ended up meeting another fellow Creek Indian from McIntosh County, and the two of them got along famously. He got picked up for public drunkenness, and they were both taken downtown to the L.A. County Jail. Never one to ever back down from a scuffle or a scrap, he once told a story about a bar fight he got into while in Farmington, New Mexico. In a New York Times article in 1976, he's quoted as saying, I eat rednecks. After a hard day's work, I walked into this bar and ordered a cocktail. And the guy sitting next to me just picked up a full quart of whiskey and hit me in the face with it. And the reporter asked Samson, what did you do? Well, I laughed at him, Samson said, and then he fainted with some help from me. Not quite sure if this story was true, the reporter then asked, when did this happen? And he looked off into the distance and he answered, yesterday, today, tomorrow. The reporter then asked him if he's ever been seriously hurt in such a brawl. And Samson quipped, I've never been knocked down conscious by a white man. And a good friend named Jay Whitecrill remembers this story well. They were living and working together in the oil fields when the incident occurred. White Crow added, the next morning after that fight, I came in and Sonny was sitting at the kitchen table sketching out the fight scene. Samson finished the story by saying, Mountains, thunderstorms, lightning, rain, those were the things that awe me. Man doesn't. In 1955, he was drafted into the Navy, and he used to joke about that saying he thought the Army had drafted him, but then he sobered up and he realized that he was actually in the Navy. Not much is known about his time in the Navy, however. It is unknown how he even got into the service to begin with, being a high school dropout, but somehow he did. And there's a common misconception that he learned how to pilot planes while in the service, but that just isn't true. The only story I have of him during this time is him sort of showing up unannounced at his sister's house in Altmulgee one night. And she said that he had walked from the bus station and passed by a watermelon patch. And he wanted to snatch a couple of the watermelons, but his hands were full from carrying both his duffel bags. While on leave, Sonny also visited California to see Yana. They had a baby boy born in 1954, but sadly, he only lived a few hours. His second son, Timothy Tim Sampson, was born in October, just one year later. Sampson was stationed in Osaka, Japan, and he returned to the U.S. in 1957. Unfortunately, he and Yana divorced, and he returned to Oklahoma to live with his mother, Cinda, and he took Tim along with him. He was honorably discharged. With the family back together in Oklahoma, they spent their days at the Sack and Fox powwows, watching softball tournaments, and just getting reacquainted. 
and every once in a while, Sonny and Kurt would take off to Washington State on a road run to see their dear friend Joe Hill and also look for some work. And it was during this time that he met his second wife, Dee, and he became a stepdad to her four children. This marriage also produced a son and a daughter, Shirley and William Sampson III. They loved spending their days at the family church in Grave Creek, and once the kids went to bed, their evenings drinking, playing dominoes, cards, or Monopoly. They also loved to pile on the big car and make road trips to Tulsa. They used to visit Tulsa all the time. There were all kinds of bars that Indians hung out at, but the most favorite ones were the Playboy and the Diamond Bar. He loved shooting pool and shooting the breeze. He continued to tirelessly work at odd jobs, but most of all he still painted. He was still entering his work in as many art shows as he possibly could, often winning top awards. In 1960, he drew and painted a big mural of Creek Indian stickball players and one of the ribbon dance, which is performed by Creek women and girls during Green Corn. He donated both to the Creek Council House in Altmulgee, where it remains to this day. And if you're ever in town, stop by and say hello. By 1963, he began getting more and more recognition for his artwork. And instead of sketches on bar napkins, he was producing paintings on canvas, and people were clamoring to buy them. In 1967, he won the top award at the Altmulgee Cultural Foundation for the Performing and Creative Arts. When the chips were down and he needed money fast, he just sold a painting, and just as quickly he spent the money he earned. And if he ever needed a beer or something to eat, he'd just pay in sketches or paintings. When he could, he would always visit his friends and family at the Grave Creek Church and sit quietly in the back. No matter where he went or what he had done, he never forgot that little church that he grew up in. His second marriage went the same way as the first, and he was divorced in 1965. During his lifetime, Sonny was legally married four times, and all in all he had nine children, five boys and four girls. Tim, born in 1956, Andra in 1960, Shirley in 61, Will Sampson III in 62, Pogi Dawn in 64, Lance in 74, Summer in 77, Sam's G in 83, and the baby of the bunch, Lumpy, in 85. Growing a little restless, Sonny soon headed back to Washington State in the late 60s to visit his old buddy Joe Hill and to work a little. As usual, he never wrote or called anyone to let them know what he was up to or how he was doing. Pieced together from a series of letters between his sister Norma Jean and a woman who lived near the area, one of his horses in Old Mulgee had broken out of the pasture and had been killed. His mother had tried to reach him to let him know about the tragedy. But of course it was just a reason to get him to call home, which he didn't. So if there's any listeners out there who knows or have heard stories about his time out there during this, please let me know. There are several long breaks in the story and I'd love to piece it all together for the family. By 1970, he had permanently relocated and was living in Yakima, Washington. He continued to paint and enter as many art shows and work odd jobs around the Toppenish area. Again, there's not much known about his life then either since he rarely called or wrote home. But he was acquainted with this Hispanic couple named Zammy and Maria. And according to Zammy, Samson was injured in a rodeo, breaking his right leg. He said he was in a full body cast for close to six months. And during this time, Zammy and his wife would run errands for him and help him get up and down the stairs at the apartment they lived in. And in a letter written by Zammy to his sister Norma, it states, Picture this, here I am, 5'7", 175 pounds, and I'm trying to help this giant 6'4 Indian weighing at least 200 pounds, 
and were going up and down the stairs making two turns. We usually made it laughing all the way. And according to the letter, Sonny did a lot of painting and watching TV when he was laid up. Zammy also claims to have had an eerie prophetic conversation with Samson during this time. Zammy claims that while they were watching TV one afternoon, Sonny randomly said out loud, Acting doesn't seem that hard. I might just go to Hollywood one day and become a famous actor. I mean, if they can do it, why can't I? Zammy claims that on that day, Samson promised him one day he'd see his name up in lights. And again, in true Sonny fashion, I cannot really verify the actual truth to this statement. I'm only bringing you what I read in the letter. Not to mention that there are actually two versions of this story. On a visit back home, Joe Hill informed the family that Sonny had actually hurt his back falling off a scaffold while working in town, that the injury would require surgery and would plague him for the rest of his life. So whether he broke his right leg in a rodeo accident or he fell off a ladder, all I can say from the stories that I've collected is that one of these is probably true. And I'll just kind of leave it up to you, the listeners, to decide which one. I'm going to leave it like a choose-your-own-adventure book. With Sonny at home resting his back, it's at this point that he landed the movie role that would forever change his life. And again, I've heard several different versions of this story, and I've compiled them all together to bring to you what I think is the right one. Sonny went into town one day to see a friend of his who was a car dealer, and the friend told him that there was some movie company in town casting a movie and that they were looking for a tall, ugly Indian. He urged Sonny to go see them and try out. He was hesitant at first, but thought, why not? I don't have anything to lose, and I definitely need a job. So he goes to the address that he was given, and as soon as he walked through the door, he was hired. Before he knew it, he was in Salem, Oregon, on the set of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I have a slightly different version of the story, and it kind of goes like this, that Samson was living in Yakima, Washington, up in the mountains, and he came down one day to check his mail, and a friend told him that there were people in town casting for a movie, and that they were looking for a tall Indian. So he thought, why not? He was always one to take a gamble anyway. He was living a pretty quiet life up there, just painting, unaware that the man his friend spoke about was Michael Douglas, and he was looking for a tall, broad, full-blooded Indian to play the part of the mute mental patient in the upcoming movie. The friend Samson was referring to was Bill Lambert, who was a used car salesman in Portland, and he also piloted several single-engine Cessna airplanes. The two knew each other because they both had flown together. He called Milos Foreman the director, and they all immediately flew to Salem to meet. On the Making Up featurette on the two-disc special edition version of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Mel Lambert and Michael Douglas, along with director Milos Foreman, tell the story of how they met Will Sampson. One of my trips back to New York, I sat next to a guy named Mel Lambert. Mel Lambert of Mel Lambert Motors in Portland, Oregon. Wanted to know if I could help him make the picture. And I said, you bet, it all depends on what you want. But I'm not, uh, I'm not impressed with great movie movie stars so i'll expect to be paid i told him what i was doing in this picture and i'm looking for indians and so michael says you know i'm i grew up as an indian my father was an indian agent and i grew up you know working on reservations and everything like that and mel lambert motors is the only car agency that sells cars to indians in the pacific northwest because they know i can i can be trusted so i said that's great mel said if you happen to run into you know a large indian let me know 
There's another version of the story that I've heard that it was a man named Mel Lambert who was a rodeo announcer and that he knew Sonny from the rodeo days and that he had a car dealership out in California and heard that they were looking for a full-blood strong Indian to play the part. Mel Lambert claims that he called Cinda back home in Mulgee looking for her son. When she told him where he was living, he said to have him call him because producers had heard about him and they were looking for him. And in a true creek way, not knowing if Sonny wanted to be found, Cinda refused to give Lambert the information. She decided to call Sonny herself. Get a call. Michael? Yes, Mel Lambert. Mel Lambert Motors. Jesus, Michael, biggest son of a bitch I ever seen in my life walked in here the other day. This son of a bitch is big, Michael. He is big. God damn, I've never seen a guy like this in my life. And I said, name Will Sampson. He's from Yakima, Washington. He's a forest ranger. He's got paintings hanging in the Smithsonian. Um, this son of a bitch, you got to see this guy. He's something else. We arrived in Portland, I think about a half an hour before the flight from Yakima, Washington came in. And so we were waiting outside as the passengers started coming off. And when Will walked out that door, here comes this big Indian. Wow, yeah, that, was, that was fabulous. And I see Milos uh, giving it this, you know, framing old big Will Sampson. There was a gasp. All of us just went together. Oh, my God. Emmer Jack said, oh, my God, can he talk? And then He doesn't have to talk. <laughs> That's right. He doesn't have to talk. Oh, my God, I don't believe it. And Jack was looking at him like a specimen from Mars. He kept walking around. I'm like, God damn, there he is. It's him. Oh, this is the walking character. Chief. Jack Nicholson, who portrayed the anti-hero Randall McMurphy in the movie, had this to say about his time working with Sonny. Will never needed to be in the movies to know he was a star. When he came to that first interview in his plaid, jeans, his turquoise belt, necktie, bird wing side locks, red ribbons in his hair, wearing a huge hat you or I could live in, you know? He was carrying these drawings. Will's got a sense of style. Whichever version of the story is true, Samson arrived carrying several paintings under his arm to show them just in case he didn't get the part. At least he'd hopefully make a couple of bucks by selling a few. The story goes that when he entered the room, they all took one look at him and hired him on the spot. And they didn't even have to mutter one line of dialogue because it wasn't required in the film. Not only that, that they bought every one of his paintings. That way he'd have enough money to get back to Washington and live on for a while, at least until they could begin work on the movie. He was 43 years old, the living, breathing entity of you're never too old to start something new. Not since his childhood days at Preston, when he was a blackbird in the school skit shouting, your master, your master, had he acted before this film. Around 1974, in the wee hours of the morning, he called home to tell the family the exciting news. Sis, I got a job in the movies. I'm going to make a lot of money, so tell me what you want and I'll buy it for you. Not sure if this is another prank, Norma Jean asked. Yeah, right, sus. You must have really tied one on. What do you have to do in this movie? And he answered, nothing. I don't have to hardly do anything. Why do you think I took the job? Along with Billy Jack, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest emerged as the decade's most notable film with a modern-day Indian hero. The movie surprised many with its $57 million box office earnings and its four major Oscar awards, including Best Picture. In the film, it is Samson's character, Chief Bromden, who fakes mutinous and ultimately smashes a window with a hydro station in order to escape the oppressive mental institution. Samson would later say, This was certainly a role that was positive, and saw the Indian as a human being. I can relate to how he felt. 
In my opinion, the last scenes in the film are some of the most powerful in motion picture history. When Bromden embraces and then smothers a lobotomized McMurphy, essentially freeing him, he picks up the heavy Marvel water station, which McMurphy had previously used in the film to illustrate the value of trying, and he hurls it through the window. The audience couldn't help but feel a resurgence of power and independence. The last shot is Bromden loping across the meadow towards the tree line. Before these final scenes were shot, director Milos Forman had an amusing conversation with Sonny pertaining to what he should do after the movie has been completed. About two days before we finish shooting, he comes to me and says, Hey, you watch this part I'm playing in this film. Is it a big part? <laughs> Bill, that's the second biggest in the movie. Hmm. Do you think I should move to Hollywood? And I said, Bill, look, go back to Yakima, because if they will want you, you can be on the North Pole and they will find you. If they will not want you, you can sit under their noses, you know. Mm, mm, mm. We finish shooting one week, late, one week later. Will Sampson is living in Hollywood and his telephone number is unlisted. <laughs> With the smashing success of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Sonny left the Yakima Valley in 1976 and indeed did move to California, as Foreman had suggested. He was already being besieged with offers of more movie roles. By this time, his oldest son, Tim, had graduated from high school in Tahlequah and had returned home briefly to pick him up. They loaded up the car trunk full of beer, and together the two of them drove out to the beautiful San Fernando Valley, and they lived together in a little cabin. Tim wasn't in California long before his father had him acting and doing stunts right beside him. Keen eyes may spot him in the background, where he was an extra on the sets of both Josie Wales and Buffalo Bill. Tim would go on to make a name for himself in acting, in such memorable roles as Warren Cutfoot in the critically acclaimed film War Party, as well as Shadow Hunter, Black Cloud, and Lakota Woman. He also appeared in television hits like the groundbreaking series Northern Exposure and Tales from the Crypt. He had worked with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost in the BBC cult hit Spaced, as well as paying homage to his father in an episode of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Tragically, Tim passed away on July 7, 2019. Even though he unsuccessfully fought for more screen time, he appeared briefly in the outlaw Josie Wells as the memorable Comanche war chief Tin Bears. The film was directed by and starred Clint Eastwood and premiered in 1976. Josie Wells is the story of a farmer who joins the Confederate guerrilla unit after his family is murdered by Union soldiers. When the war ends, everyone in the unit is murdered except for Josie because he refused to surrender to the Union. Josie goes west to escape the Union's clutches and the bounty hunters that are thirsty for the price on his head. Along the way, he must defeat those who wish him harm and help those in need of protection, and he makes a few friends along the way, including a Native American woman named Little Moonlight and a Native man named Lone Wadey, who, like Josie, lost his family too to the cruel white man. Sonny never played your ordinary Indian in the roles that he chose. As Tin Bears, chief of the Comanches, in the proud chief tradition, as Samson described it, trying to save his dignity, trying to keep as much of his land as possible, yet knowing 
that soon his people were going to be overwhelmed. The outlaw Josie Wells is commonly referred to as Hollywood's first anti-Western. As film critic Robert C. Sickles said, the sub-characters in the film, as well as the main character, have been updated and revised for a 1970s audience, well-versed in the discussion of civil rights that had dominated public discourse since the early 1960s. Just like Cuckoo before it, Josie Wells offers a nuanced and realistic portrayal of Native Americans. Although the Native characters in the film can still be categorized as savages or noblemen, at least they have an active role in the story. I mean, these characters have speaking lines, they have backgrounds and personal goals. And they may not be the main characters, but they do have a significant part in the telling of the story. Sickles argues that the story would never happen without these characters, and when he makes the case that Little Moonlight and Lone Wadey are integral parts of Josie Wells' narrative, without their invaluable help, Josie surely would have been killed. And before I go on, I gotta say, if you have not seen the outlaw Josie Wells, do yourself a favor and watch it. It is the first time that I can remember seeing a uh, female uh, Native American character portrayed as a complete badass. Geraldine Keems is amazing in this film. And in fact, really all the Native actors in this are stellar, including Lone Wadey, played masterfully by the late Chief Dan George. He becomes Josie's good friend and sidekick along the way and seems to kind of fit in the noble Indian category. He's always saving Josie when he needs it the most. He appears to have conformed to the white man's ways, sporting a top hat and a nice overcoat. And he tells Josie, I'm an Indian, all right, but here in the nation they call us a civilized tribe because we're so easy to sneak up on. The humor in this film is very biting. And it is through these kinds of characterizations that the outlaw Josie Wales takes a much more sympathetic approach to depicting Native Americans than films before it. And giving Samson's feelings on the subject, you can certainly understand why he took the part in the movie, no matter how small. Along with the nobleman, Josie Wells depicts even the savage Indian with more respect and sensitivity. Josie must confront the Native American warrior Tin Bears, again played by Sonny. While Tin Bears has a reputation for being a great fighter, the film does not betray him as this vicious and senseless killer. Instead, as Sickles points out, Josie knows that worthy foes, as well as friends, come in all ethnicities and genders. He knows of Tin Bears' reputation, and he enters their meeting with respect. Clint Eastwood skillfully portrays natives as human beings, worthy of respect, both in fear and in friendship. He gives the native actors in this film a voice. You'll be Ten Bears? I am Ten Bears. I'm Josie Wales. I have heard. You're the Grey Rider. You would not make peace with the Blue Coats. You may go in peace. I reckon not. Got nowhere to go. And you will die. I came here to die with you. Or live with you. Dying ain't so hard for men like you and me. It's living that's hard. When all you've ever cared about has been butchered or raped. Governments don't live together. People live together. In governments, you don't always get a fair word or a fair fight. Well, I've come here to give you either one. 
get either one from you. I came here like this so you'll know my word of death is true. And that my word of life is then true. The bear lives here. The wolf, the antelope, the Comanche. And so will we. Now, we'll only hunt what we need to live on, same as the Comanche does. And every spring, when the grass turns green and the Comanche moves north, you can rest here in peace, butcher some of our cattle, and jerk beef for the journey. The sign of the Comanche. That will be on our lodge. That's my word of life. And your word of death? It's here in my pistols, and there in your rifles. I'm here for either one. These things you say we will have. We already have. That's true. I ain't promising nothing extra. Yeah, sorry about that. I kind of let that clip run a little bit longer. I just got so caught up in, in watching that. <laughs> it makes me want to go back and watch the entire film now. But uh, after uh, Josie Wells, his next role was that of the interpreter in Robert Altman's Buffalo Bill and the Indians, or Sitting Bull's History Lesson. And Robert Altman's one of those directors, whether either you kind of love him or hate him, they're very uh, loose. The films are loose, and it's usually like this ensemble cast. It almost feels like improv in a way. Um, it's just a lot of talking. But anyway, um, the film starred Paul Newman, um, Harvey Keitel, and Frank Cockwitz as Sitting Bull. And it, too, explores the boundaries between um, what we define as heroes, hypocrisy, and illusion. Uh, it also tackles the more complex question of what kind of America has been passed on to us by these so-called historians. How much of it is fact? How much of it is fantasy? And in this film, he played the often forgotten historical figure William Halsley, uh, Sitting Bull's interpreter. Samson described um, Halsley as a highly educated man who tried to get every bit he could for the Indians. The time is 1885. Colonel William F. Cody, played by Paul Newman, is the chief attraction in an open-air and tent show called Buffalo Bill's Wild West, an absolute original and heroic enterprise of imitable luster. The action of the film takes place in and around this vaudeville-style environment, where tourists come to see various acts like buffalo wrestling, sharpshooting, and entertainments like stagecoach robberies and cowboys fighting Indians. Buffalo Bill and his entourage have packaged the history of the Wild West in circus stunts and carnival spectacles. And when the director of the show announces at one point, I'm going to codify the world, you start to recognize the preposterousness of their motivations. And when Annie Oakley, played by Geraldine Chaplin, asks Buffalo Bill, why don't you tell the truth in your shows? He replies, I got a better sense of history than that. The best scenes in the film, however, come when Chief Sitting Bull is brought to the Wild West show by the army. He is accompanied by the strong, willful interpreter played by Sonny. The idea was to put the chief in a vignette about the Battle of Little Bighorn. The Indians, of course, have the accurate story that they want to tell, you know, about how American soldiers were slaughtering unarmed women and children. Needless to say, that piece is rejected. Instead, the white audiences are given Buffalo Bill's revision of history. In his Battle of Little Bighorn, Custer wins. The truth is whatever gets the most applause. Again, it is a biting, satirical look at the way that history is told and retold. Indians appear, led by the fiercest Indian of all, Chief Sitting Bull. Oh, Chief, 
We got a colored stand in place for you, because he's the closest thing on our staff to a real injured. Custer knows it's going to be the fight for his life. Sitting Bull uses an old engine ploy. He fakes Custer into thinking it's going to be an honorable duel to the death between the two great leaders. Then, bam! George gets shot in the back by all the other Redskins. Sitting says the battle did not happen that way. Sitting was not present on the battlefield. He was making medicine and dreaming. He saw many horses upside down and blue skeletons floating up to the promised land. Halsey? I think. What did he shoot that gun for? Hey, Chief, put that gun down. You're going to hurt somebody. Sitting thinks you're a great marksman. He can see how you kill so many of his buffalo. On the set, Sonny had a conversation with Paul Newman about the way that Native American actors were being portrayed. He told a New York Times reporter in 1976, in a voice that quavered with anger, discussing the way Indians have traditionally been depicted in those Western pictures. They're still using them as livestock. They just somehow won't bring it around to give the truth about what happened. It just galls them. They can't seem to let us win. They call Custer's battle a massacre. It wasn't. It was a battle. Next up, he played Crazy Horse in a film called The White Buffalo. During the filming of this movie, Samson walked off the set, refusing to act alongside white actors who had been cast in the native roles. This shut down production for nearly a week until producers found real natives to play the parts. He said it was crazy for Hollywood to continue to cast white actors in these roles when there's plenty of native actors out there waiting. After that, he made it his personal goal to change the attitude Hollywood always had about native actors. Along with Jay Silverheels, together they founded the American Indian Registry for Performing Arts, which helped these struggling actors find roles. The registry created its own talent directory and encouraged studios whenever they could to hire natives not only as actors, but artists and technicians as well. He said, they're out there and they're qualified. They're all over the United States and the studios aren't looking at them. He had a strong dislike for the way Native Americans of all tribes had been treated. In between movies, he would visit reservations all over the states, trying to restore hope and pride in Native youth. Here's an interview that he did in 1976 that explains this. And I have to tell you, I apologize ahead of time for the audio quality of this clip getting such wide acclaim that you are being looked up to by a lot of the Indian children now. And I, I bring this uh, up because uh, in an article I wrote for the Rap City Journal, I talked about a, an Indian, a California Korea Indian man named George Miranda, who uh, t was talking before the Indian Claims Commission. And he said that uh, his daughter came home from school and was in tears one night and she had, uh, had seen a movie at school, and uh, she says, Dad, aren't there any good Indians in this world? <laughs> yeah, that, uh, that affects me. I've seen a lot of that throughout uh, my life while I was growing up and working around the country at different jobs and things, and always have done or tried to do things for the Indian schools and Indian children, and uh, 
the thing that I've found is they're, they're very proud to be an Indian. They're very proud, but they don't know what they're proud of, you know, but they know they're proud, and, they're, and it's lost somewhere in that, uh, in between there. And the only thing that I could think of or could possibly be the answer was I looked around, there are no Indian heroes for the children today, like the white children have. Uh, they've got baseball, football, boxing. Uh, all, you know, they got all kinds of heroes that they're, they're living. They can see on film and uh, uh, go see. And uh, the Indian children have none. All their heroes are dead. Uh, Crazy Horse, uh, Red Cloud, uh, Sitting Bull, and all the great chiefs, uh, they're, all, they're all gone. But they're proud of them, but they're not here. So in that effect, I, uh, that's what I try to be, or want to be for the Indian children, or Indian people. Give them some kind of something that's... Uh, something to identify. Uh, if he did it, I can do it, or, mm -hmm. you know, somebody, somebody is really looking out for us, you know. Well, I think the, the black actors went through this quite a bit when they were first breaking into the movie industry, and that uh, stereotyping <coughs> among the blacks was probably as bad, maybe not quite as bad, but it was very bad. And uh, you saw images like the step and fetch it type of yes, yes and boss and, and this sort of thing in the movies. And this was what almost all the children, in fact, myself, when I, when I first saw black men, I thought this was the only type of black men there was because this is the images that have been shown to us as children. And uh, I'm, I'm sure that uh, a lot of the Indian children can see now that there are serious dramatic roles for Indians that present Indians as human beings rather than howling savages that are coming out of the right. on horses. And that's something that hasn't been done yet, as, as of yet, because there are a lot of great stories of Indian scholars, Indian writers, uh, great poets, uh, artisans, uh, or even doctors that contributed to, uh, even in Congress. A lot of the laws and legislation are written on the Indian ways of government because they had this land and they had government that worked for the white men came. Right. And they adapted some of these uh, laws and bylaws in their constitutions and laws and things. And uh, there's just a tremendous amount of stories that, uh, that, that are really, and true, true stories of great Indians. You that, think uh, uh, probably that one of the reasons, Will, is uh, from some of the reading I've done, is uh, Indians were omitted from history books mm -hmm. as, as people yeah. who contributed to making this country a good, strong country. Indians had so much that they contributed. A lot of the foods that you find all over the world, potatoes, beans, yes. corn, these were all Indian grown. And a lot of people don't know that, don't even understand it. Mm -hmm. That's and, true. And uh, an Indian student in school that's reading history books, he doesn't find out any of these things mm -hmm. until he actually goes to, to a school where this is a, a culture thing. And, then they, and they don't teach it. You have to find it. You have to look it up for It's yourself. there, but they, they have to research it and find it yourself because they won't tell you this. And it's, it's a funny thing, you know, people believe potatoes come from Ireland. Hence the Irish potato, but it, did, it didn't. It came from America. That's right. It's an Indian food. And well, I didn't know it myself until I, I did some research and found it out. Yeah, that's, that's true. And uh, lately they're rewriting some of the textbooks I've seen. Uh, gradually coming around to giving credit to the Indian for a lot of things, whereas before they didn't or hadn't mentioned. And like when I was growing up, the history books and the uh, things about the United States, uh, what is it, the United States history or whatever, uh, that were omitted. A lot of the lawmakers and stuff way back then in the colonies were Indian. 
yeah, I, I got to apologize once again for the uh, audio quality of that. Uh, hopefully that video noise that you heard uh, didn't buzz out your speakers and bust your eardrums out. Uh, but that is taken from an interview that he did with um, Tim Giago, uh, who had a cable access show called The First Americans. Uh, that appeared somewhere like uh, 1977 or so, and it's only a clip. And if there's anybody out there that has the uh, entire episode, I'd love to see it. In the space of just two short years, Sonny had become the film world's foremost Native American actor. And he came along just at the right time, because in that era, the ethnic awareness in Hollywood was no longer allowing studios to get away with smearing makeup on a Chuck Connors or Burt Lancaster, sticking a feather in their hair or a wig on their head and calling them Apache. He once joked by saying he wanted to find himself a role that required more than just being a proud, bearing Native American. A lot of Italians have played Indians, you know. Someday I'd like to play an Italian. That'd be a different kind of work, isn't it? Actually, the part I've always wanted to play maybe is Rommel, the desert fox. He had a wonderful sense of humor. I'm just being myself, he said, shrugging off the notion about his acting ability. I mean, if I were playing the German general, I'd call it acting. But being myself, well, that's just not difficult at all. His next film role was the Jaws-inspired movie Orca in 1977. And then he made the TV movie Alcatraz, The Whole Shocking Story, in 78. In between movie roles, he found time to travel to Indian reservations and tribal towns all over the nation to speak on behalf about their problems plaguing them. He began to read up on tribal politics and government, and slowly his hard partying lifestyle began to change. He was once invited to speak to young students in an Indian school in South Dakota, and he was torn and embarrassed on what to say, having never finished high school himself. In the end, he accepted the invitation and went on to tell them how important education is. He did a lot of traveling, appearing all over the states at celebrations, powwows, and protest marches. He started earmarking some of his movie earnings, and he started putting it into programs like Redwind, an enterprise in California that helps alcoholics. The whole idea, he said, was to take your money and run, I'm going to pour it back into my people. It was during these travels, though, that he began to develop a constant cough. Despite all of the acting work he found himself doing and the speaking engagements, he continued to paint. His artwork was featured in the Yakima Valley Regional Library, the Warehouse Gallery, and the National Western Art Show in Ellensburg. He also completed work for the Smithsonian Institute, the Denver Art Gallery, and the Gilcrease Museum in Tulsa, Oklahoma. After Orca, he ventured into television, doing several more made-for-TV movies. He appeared as Highway Patrolman Sam Watchman in Relentless, Uncle George in The Hunted Lady, Lonnie Moon in the television version Standing Tall, before landing the role of Harvey Tooleaf in the television series Vegas. In April of 1984, he returned to Tulsa to act in a stage play Black Elk Speaks with David Carradine. He played the part of Red Cloud, and by this time, a new Samson was on the scene, and he also had a small part in the play. His son, Samsuchi. A few years later, Lumhimiko was born. Backstage, many noticed that Sonny had to use oxygen to help him breathe. His last big film role was Poltergeist 2, The Other Side. Even if you're just a casual moviegoer or horror fan, you've probably heard of the Poltergeist curse. 
It's been the subject of many online articles, TV specials, and many documentaries, including E! True Hollywood Story. More recently, it was featured as Episode 3 on Shudder TV's Cursed Films. Sadly, four lead actors from the trilogy all suffered deaths within a six-year span following the original film's release, including Sonny. Given the film's original premise about the house being built on top of an Indian burial mound, this film added a spiritual element that I felt kind of lacked in the first one. It introduces a character named Taylor, who's an Indian medicine man, and he was played com with complete dignity by Sonny. He reminds Craig T. Nelson to be a man, face fear, and accept your fate in the spirit world. You feel like a leaf at the mercy of the wind, don't you? Yep. That's right. That's me. Since the day you were born, one way or another, someone has been doing something to you. No, I don't, I don't think that's true. And they've been doing something to you against your will. And but now you're feeling helpless, like a leaf in the wind. Taylor, it would help me out a lot if you just say what's on your mind so I could understand it. You understand me. No matter how much you like to feel sorry for yourself, you have to change that. I'm a warrior. A warrior would rather be defeated and die than act against his nature. That is the path you've chosen to take, whether you know it or not. You should assume full responsibility Responsibility for what? Responsibility for everything. Everything in your world. He's also there to remind Joe Beth Williams' character to never underestimate the strength of children, despite their age or their gender. What are you doing? Well, hi, Mom. I'm going to help protect the family now. Let me see. Come outside, Robbie. Hey, I'm a big guy now. And I'm still your mother. Go in the house and yeah. wait for me. Thanks, Mom. He wants to be a man. Well, there are a lot of ways to be a man. I'm not sure wearing claw marks and war paint is one of them. How would you know? What? You're not a man, are you? Okay, I'm not a man. But you're not a mother. It is my job to do everything I can to make my children part of a normal world. A world of school and friends and lovers and, and families of their own someday. Well, that's good. Right. I know. And I hope that they'll learn to forget all this soon. Well, they cannot learn by forgetting. Well, what would you have me do? I mean, they're just children, for God's sake. Children have fought wars. They've built nations. They are strong and have courage. Don't treat them any less than that because they're young. Even though it was apparently obvious that something was wrong, Sonny always brushed it off, saying that he was just fine. You see, he was never one to ever complain about the common, everyday aches and pains of daily life. But his face and his demeanor began to change. One day he would be all right, and the next day he'd have a coughing fit so bad that he couldn't even get out of bed. He knew something wasn't right when he began to see flakes of blood every time he'd cough. He also began to become lethargic and fatigued, 
he was losing weight and he looked frail. It was during this time that his health began to rapidly decline due to a diagnosis of systematic sclerosis. It's an autoimmune disorder. It's a condition in which the immune system attacks the body. Healthy tissue is destroyed because the immune system mistakenly thinks it's a foreign substance or infection. The disease for which there is no cure affected his heart, his lungs, and even began to harden his skin. Despite his health problems, Sonny continued to work. He played Tall Eagle in the Chuck Norris Treasure Hunter film Firewalker, and he made his final appearance in the 1987 TV movie The Gunfighters. He was so weak from the effects of his illness that he appears briefly, only as train passenger. And if you've ever seen these appearances, they're really hard to watch. His health declined further, and he went from weighing 260 pounds to just 140. He was in desperate need of a lung and heart transplant. In January 1987, it was all hands on deck. Several family members made the trek to California to care for the ailing star. He would stay awake long enough to watch a little TV here and there, or maybe read a chapter or two from the Bible. His boys fed the horses that they kept and took care of mending and minding the little cabin. He had ducks, geese, and several dogs to care for. He told his mother and his sister that he didn't ever want to go to the hospital because he was scared of never coming back home again. There was an actor friend that Sonny knew named Dale Birdie. You might remember him as Chief Henry in that really grown-tastic episode of Saved by the Bell called Running Zack. The two had met on the set of Vegas. Birdie introduced Samson to a woman producer named Sandy Webb. When she found out about the dire condition that Sonny was in, she agreed to help him. Together with Del Birdie, who was in Houston at the time filming a TV pilot, he was given the name of a doctor there at the Houston Medical Center named Dr. E. Clinton Lawrence. He had developed a lung transplant program at the Methodist Hospital. Lawrence agreed to examine Sonny as long as he could make it to Houston. The problem was, along with his health, Sonny's finances had also deteriorated rapidly. The cost of the transplant could easily top $150,000. On March 16, 1987, a miracle occurred. With money donated by Danny DeVito, Michael Douglas, and Martin Sheen, Samson flew to the famous Methodist Hospital in Houston, Texas. When he got there, he was immediately put on the list for a heart-lung donor. Once admitted, several members of the family made the drive from Oklahoma to be with him. He was thin and extremely weak, but his brown eyes lit up every time somebody walked through the door. Even with the aid of oxygen, he continued to cough and he struggled to breathe. He was embarrassed and self-conscious by the fact that every little thing had to be done for him. After several weeks of hospitalization, another miracle happened. A donor was found. The surgery took place on April 22, 1987. As they wheeled into the operating room, he told his mother that he just wanted everyone to love and forgive each other. His last spoken word to her before he wheeled him in was, I'm going home, Mom. The surgery went well, but soon complications set in. He slipped into a coma. He knew and the doctors knew that his chances of survival would be extremely small because of his weakened condition. But everybody felt that he deserved whatever small opportunity a transplant might offer him for a new chance. There seemed to be a little light when he came out of the coma just a few days later. Tanea Torres, a California actress known as the Indian Maiden in the Mazzola corn oil commercials, who had also helped raise funds for Samson's medical expenses, stated, he was just walking around yesterday. Sadly, it wouldn't last. 
he would quietly slip back into a coma a day later. And on June 3, 1987, his mother was in Altmulgee making arrangements to fly back down to Houston. The telephone rang. His sister Norma picked up the phone. It was Tim, Sonny's oldest son. You can tell Grandma not to come. Dad's gone. Doctors believe a post-operative fungal infection, kidney failure, and Samson's malnourished state before the operation is what led to his death. Dr. Lawrence told the press, I think it was a blessing, because he was not in any kind of pain at the end. I think Will would not have wanted to continue in his final state. He just wanted a chance at a meaningful life, and he wanted a chance to get back at acting. But unfortunately, he was just too weak. Will Samson, the gentle Indian giant, best remembered for his portrayal of the feigning mute chief in the amusing and poignant and powerful film One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, made the spiritual journey. Upon hearing of his passing, actor Jack Nicholson issued a statement saying that he would miss a great friend. As with the entire Indian community, his body was returned to Altmulgee for burial. His old friend from Haskell Indian Institute, Reverend Jimmy Anderson and Reverend Harley Barnosky conducted the services. The family hoped to have a quiet ceremony at the family church at Grave Creek, but due to the outpouring love, well-wishers, and support, the First Baptist of Altmulgee opened its doors. Actor Max Gale from Barney Miller fame read from a letter that Sonny once wrote to him. When the services were concluded, it was time for the family to take Sonny home. Down through Altmulgee, down the two-lane highway to the Grave Creek Indian Baptist Church, the Creek Nation Light Horsemen met the limousine and hitched a corner and escorted the procession through the little town, down the winding dirt roads where as a child he used to run along beside the wagon, looking inside snake holes and just playing all day. His lifelong friend and cousin Kurt led the procession riding old Buck, a buckskin horse that Will loved riding every time he came back to Morris to visit. The Vietnam veteran to the Creek Nation gave a salute in his honor of his time served in the Navy. People gathered together and sang many of his favorite Creek songs, including Eya, Eya, Hamle Meman, and Jesus, Gawakapti.
small boy, Sonny used to wake up early on spring mornings and listen to the birds chirping outside the house. He could imitate them exactly, you know. He had learned to recognize the different kinds of birds just by the way they could sing, and he had a funny little way of curling his tongue so that he could make those same sounds. The whole house would be asleep on pallets on the floor just crowded in bed together, but there he'd be, this happy little carefree boy looking out the window towards the treetops, dreaming and singing along with the birds. And to this day when the whippoorwills and the turtle doves cry in the late evenings, maybe it's Sunny just coming back to say hello. Mado.
this man is a younger me. My father had spoke to me. Once beautiful nations. Nation. Oh, no, Yahweh. 